Welcome back to another episode of the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host. I'm Carol Corinne Safali. I'm a certified health coach and food and body image coach and breathwork facilitator, all these cool things. I want to thank you guys so much for being with me today. We have an awesome interview with Emily, your mental health BFF, as she is known on Instagram and TikTok. She is a licensed trauma therapist. And so today you're going to be getting advice and tips and support and strategies from a licensed mental health professional. She shares so many powerful insights, wisdom, support. In addition to sharing her story with us today, she talks about what it was like for her struggling with substance abuse. If you're experiencing any type of substance abuse, whether that's drugs or alcohol, also having having that coupled with eating disorders and the type of support she found to help her recover. She went through a type of recovery program that I had never even heard of before in my life, had no idea this type of thing existed, but it's really interesting and cool. And I'm excited for you guys to hear her story. Just a couple of quick announcements before we get into the episode with her, but my new book, One Day at a Time, Daily Reflections for Overcoming Food and Body Image Struggles is now available on Amazon and Kindle. It's designed to have one page read a day. It's filled with short little digestible nuggets of wisdom from my heart to yours. It's a collection of pieces that I've written since 2017, and I put the book together as a way to sort of tie a nice little bow and bookend my seven years as a food and body image coach, which if you have not heard already, I am in the process of retiring and closing down the coaching business. If you haven't heard that, I do talk about it um, in some previous episodes and I will be diving into it deeper in an upcoming episode where I really just lay it all out for you guys and answer the questions that I've been receiving from you on Instagram Um, So I will be diving more into that. And then the other announcement is that while I am in this, I guess like runway, I don't know what to call it. I haven't even figured out how to articulate it. But this process of closing up the business, my two courses, Food Body Soul the Academy and Embodied Rebel Masterclass are available for you to purchase. But once I officially close the door, which will be I think the second week in July, they will no longer be available. So if they're anything that you've been considering, now is the time because they will be taken down when the doors close. And that's all I got for you in terms of announcements. Thank you guys so much for being here. Let's get into this awesome, awesome interview with the beautiful Emily. So I want to start our conversation today. It's how I start most of the conversations is learning about the early context of your life. Often it's so formative and it plays a massive role in your motivations and who you become and how you relate to life. So what is that early context that I would need to know and understand so that I could understand you and like who you are today? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I'm thinking about where to begin. (laughs) So, and you just stop me if I'm like going into too much detail, but I was born, I always say like, cause I tell my story a lot at like recovery meetings and 
I always start my story by saying I was born in the middle of Manhattan, in the middle of the week, in the middle of a Wednesday, in the middle of the summer, and I cried for like the first year of my life. <laughs> and that was just like how I, and I had a stomach ache. I was crying because I had a stomach ache. Um, and that's kind of like the general vibe of my internal world for like a really huge part of growing up. Not today, not today. Um, how'd you know you had a stomach ache from zero to one? My parents tell me that. And I also couldn't sleep and I would only go to sleep with like a vacuum. So like, I was really like upset from mm from the start basically like not Um, happy to be out of the womb no not at all I was like this is too much put me back (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and so I lived in Manhattan for the first little bit of my life and then my parents moved to um North Jersey like right outside the city But when I was very young, like four or five, my parents got divorced and it's not like a, it wasn't traditionally like a bad divorce or anything. I mean, they like, it was not a good marriage. I don't believe, um, like my parents aren't like friends or anything. Um, same. Yeah. And so like, that's been my whole life and growing up, the story I made up about that was that I was so blessed to have two homes to live and, and two parents who love me. And while that is totally true facts, um, I switched houses every few days until I went to college when I turned 18. And there's some part of my like little child brain that said, dad's moving out. So something's wrong with me. That's what that means. And I, I would say that I developed some pretty deep attachment wounds at that point. And, um, I just wasn't like, I, I presented as a really happy kid. I was a people pleaser. I was quiet in school. I was like a good girl until I wasn't. (laughs) Um, and I got, I started using substances at a, like 12 years old and then I just it just got worse like I stopped being the good girl um I started getting addicted to things I started having relationship issues I um had body issue image issues from a real like from when I was like five I can remember having those issues and so all of that just kind of came together wrapped in this ball of like depression and by the time I was like a junior in high school I want to say I was so depressed I had multiple eating disorders I was addicted to drugs like I didn't have good relationships I was self-harming I was a mess and then I moved to Vermont to Burlington like that summer before senior year of high school and I took some classes and I wasn't living at home and I wasn't doing drugs and I was really happy and I was like so like so content like things felt better and then I came back for senior year and I had a boyfriend and 
I was still using, but I was also doing stuff to like take care of myself in some ways. Like I was exercising, which is a huge tool for me today. Um, and I think that was good. And I wasn't doing hard drugs. I was still severely abusing like uh, cannabis, like so badly. And that it's not, I don't like think that's great, but it wasn't like bringing me into this like darkness that I had been in. Um, but also around that time I discovered other substances. I'm not sure what it's okay to like say. So, okay. Is so I, yeah. totally. So right. I discovered amphetamines, which made me not hungry. And that was like a light in my brain. They also made me feel less depressed. And so I dabbled with that a little, but it was like, it was manageable. Um, I got, went to the University of Colorado in Boulder when I turned 18. That's some, I have an August birthday. So like I turned 18 and I went and I got so severely addicted to amphetamines within like three months of getting there. And like, literally like, like my clothes didn't fit. I, I wasn't sleeping. I was by second semester. I had like been in the hospital for drug related issues. Like just a mess failing out of classes and that just got worse and worse like literally using severely abusing things hallucinogens nonstop for like until I was 22 and I was I went I was enrolled in this school for like years and I had nine credits when I left like just to put that in perspective wow wow and I like I've heard it's a really big party school. I guess so. Okay. My brother went to Boulder, CU Boulder as well. And, um, God, I don't know if you'd want me to tell this story or not. So maybe I'll save it. But anyways, I remember it being a party school. Yeah. And, you know, I had like two groups of friends. I had one group of friends where literally most of them are dead at this point and I have another group of friends and they're all thriving and doing amazing and like don't have drug problems and um I I it was very clear like I was gonna go down one of those roads and I had a lot of like ish like ish I had a lot of issues like going to I've been to the Boulder hospital a handful of times just like crazy shit happening that like doesn't happen if you're not I didn't sleep or eat for like four years so like I was a mess and um I was really addicted to prescription pills I had doctors in multiple states prescribing me multiple different like it was it was nuts and I don't I literally can like the things that happened during that time period like they're all, I don't know what year things happen. I don't know how old I was. Like, it's just like this big ball of like chaos and confusion. Um, but I really like feel grateful to that journey because if I didn't start using, I don't think I could have tolerated living and it really saved my life at one point. And then it stopped working and it started killing me. Which I think is the is the pattern, right? Like when you hear about anybody talk about, thank you for going into that. And I definitely have yeah. questions. Um, but when you hear like any, um, authority or expert talk about trauma, they talk about 
or uh, I'm sorry, addiction, excuse me, they talk about it being like a Hail Mary attempt at trying to feel better. And that you're like, it's an attempt to like either suppress, numb, avoid, cope, survive from whatever hardship that you don't otherwise know how to survive and deal with. And I don't know your perspective and belief, but I really like uh, Gaber Mate's perspective on addiction. Okay. About how underneath all addiction, it's trauma and the addictive behaviors, this, whatever it is, substance abuse, you know, shopping addiction, eating disorders, like whatever it is, like that's a way that you're trying to regulate from the dysregulation caused from the trauma. So while on the outside, it looks like somebody's destroying their life and it might lead to that, like it did for you, you know, your breaking point, but before it was an attempt to survive, it was like a life raft. And I'm grateful for that because I I like, don't think I would have made it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think too, and I think this happens for a lot of people, like at home, whatever was going on, I'm not going to go into detail about like family dynamics because it's not my business to talk about my family, you know? But what I would tell myself was that because no one's like beating the shit out of me or like I'm not being abused every day, like shock trauma that I don't have a reason to feel so terrible. And what I've learned, not only in my own recovery, but as a therapist is like, there's so much more to trauma, to complex trauma than just PTSD shock trauma. Right. Which speaks to what you were saying about how through your little, little girl brain for to whatever age you were, how, you know, when, what I've learned about neurological development is that from like zero to six, we're like super in our subconscious. And we think everything is about us. We don't have, um, can't do empathy. Can't do empathy and just think that everything is our fault that like, we're the center of the fucking universe, like you know? Yeah. And so you said that you made, you made up, you made it believe that dad was moving out because you were bad or you did something wrong. So like that, even though wasn't true to your brain at the time, it was true. And that is a fucking traumatizing belief to internalize right. at that time. So, okay. It might not have been shock trauma, but like that. Yeah experience and how you interpreted it and like the filter through which you interpreted it sounds like became kind of like the roadmap for you right and that and that's developmental trauma and so to exactly what you said like when we are that young the brain um like we the brain has to protect the attachment to the primary caregivers because that's survival right and so therefore it's not safe to say they they're the problem right so we as children our brains say okay something is wrong with me and then our whole self-image builds around that that notion that something is wrong with me which is shame absolutely and I'm assuming that potentially thinking oh something is wrong with me I'm assuming you tell me, but played a role in you becoming sort of like this people pleaser, acting happy on the outside. Really? 
Yeah, because I, I think, I don't think it was conscious, but I felt like, okay, I can't make any more waves. Like I have to hold it together for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Until you couldn't. So do you want to share a little bit more about how you were like, you don't have to, but do you want to share more about how um, you were grateful for it and you didn't think you could survive about it? That To me, that felt like a real like potent way to reflect, like to now reflect and look back. Like, did it feel that way at the time? Yeah, totally. That's like, I was just like putting myself in my like little 15, 16 year old shoes. Yes. Like I like literally think at that point in time, anything that soothed my nervous system got me outside of my brain and stopped me from thinking about like how miserable I was and how much I hated myself was like a haven, you Mm. know? Mm. And there was also a lot of stuff with food going on at this time Um, and, and bulimia and it was just all these things to try and like feel some semblance of like, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we reach to them to regulate our nervous system, you know, like whether it's, um, you know, like alcohol, drugs, I have most of my expertise, like in eating disorders and bulimia. And I can look back on having bulimia and I absolutely saw it as a way of regulating because being out in the world was so hard because of that self-hatred and that self-consciousness, like every single interaction. And I don't know if it was like this for you, but every single interaction, I was so self-conscious and insecure within and my internal dialogue, um, was incredibly critical and harsh. And I would second guess everything that I said, if I smiled, if I didn't, I was trying so hard to make sure that people liked me. I was so worried that they didn't, that it was like so incredibly stressful. And even if like, I'm in an experience where it's calm, I was so activated and overstimulated because of the, the, the critical inner voice. And so going home and like binge eating and numbing out to TV and throwing up was like me just like kind of like static on a TV or like a white noise machine or something. And it is kind of like getting high. Like if you've binged, which you have, like, you know, like you're not there during the binge or, or the anticipation of the purge. Then afterwards though, it's, it's like coming down. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. That's spot on. And I think that inner critic too is like, can be the part of us that's trying to protect us from the outside world where it's like, if you can just be literally perfect, no one can hurt you and you're not going to piss anyone off and there won't be conflict, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So how you just, how you just described that about the inner critic being a protector and then Um, you were alluding to um, acknowledging how bad it was, was really helpful for you because for so long you were telling yourself because you didn't have that shock trauma that you didn't have any reason to feel bad. It really makes me feel like you're describing IFS and okay. Do you want to kind of chat about it from like your therapist perspective, like what IFS is and Yeah. So, and uh, you know, I haven't done a formal training in it, but I really love it. I'm also reading a really good book on eating disorders and IFS right now and parts work, Mm. but 
the way I like to use parts work, and I'd love to hear about you using it as well, because I know you're trained in it, um, is looking at the different parts of self as like inner child, inner teenager, and which for me, like inner teenager is the advocate. So inner child is like the exile. Right. That, right. yes. Yes. An inner teenager. And then the manager for me, like that part is like my inner critic, if it's not in balance. Um, and I see that with clients too. And so it's really like inner child, inner teen, and then parent voice usually is how I see it. Mm-hmm. And then obviously self, like actual higher self aligned self. And so I think it's really, I love parts work because instead of saying like these parts of ourselves are bad, we pull them closer and we can start to like gentle parent them. And I think that takes so much of the shame out of the thoughts and behaviors that we have when it's anything like eating disorders, substance abuse, whatever, anything that's like a stigmatized behavior or disorder like we can start to see so much wisdom in it yeah 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 so how come acknowledging like why was that so helpful for you like acknowledging how bad it actually was because that kind of also speaks to releasing some of the shame around the unhelpful behaviors I think acknowledging it allowed me to work on things Like it allowed me to give space to the things that I was pushing down and pushing down that were actually controlling me. Go deeper, potent, go deeper. That was powerful. Yeah. So like, I feel like my life wasn't manageable. Right. And like, um, I was controlled by all these impulses, which were really just like micro trauma responses to everything, like reacting to people, reacting to places, reacting to fears, re- you know, like so many crazy things happened when I was using that were like real shock traumas on top of the developmental stuff. And um, to actually sit back and be like, the bar that I had was so low. My bar was like, if I lived, it's not a big deal. <laughs> basically or like if nobody was like beating me up every day it wasn't a big deal and to stop and have I really had a therapist stop me and be like I like you are having trauma responses and like this is PTSD and to have a therapist who I trusted say that to me and me be like oh like these are real experiences and it doesn't, it's not about how good or how bad it was. It's about how it's impacting me. It doesn't really matter the severity of what it was. And with eating disorders, I'm sure you see this, but like our clients never think they're sick enough, right? Especially, and I, I don't want to discredit any, any suffering, but like with restrictive eating disorders, nobody ever thinks they're sick enough. (laughs) And I've every person with anorexia that I've worked with, like they never think they're sick enough until they're literally being threatened to be taken to the hospital. And I relate so much. And, you know, part of that is cultural, right? But, or a huge part, but um, to take that denial out and just let it be that if something is impacting you or controlling you, it's a problem to work on is kind of powerful. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things that sort of lit off in my brain as you were saying that, you know, like acknowledging that it was actually really bad without that acknowledgement that like you are sick enough and that it was really hard and you were having trauma response without that acknowledgement, then it's, then there's quote, nothing to do. Yes. You know, and then you, um, we're talking about the power of having a therapist acknowledge and validate that what you were experiencing was actually traumatic and hard. And I just want to like pause and take a moment and like, for the people listening, there is so much power in that validation and acknowledgement that happens when somebody holds that mirror back up to you. And is like, that was actually really hard. And that is really traumatizing because it allows you to stop like gaslighting yourself essentially. It's so funny you say that because I'm always like to my clients who do that. I'm like, stop gaslighting yourself. Like we don't do, you don't need to do that to yourself. Someone's already doing that. You don't need to add to it. Right, right. And I think part of the reason why we do that, like, could be a protective mechanism. I know that if we acknowledge how bad it is, then like that means it has to come up in order for us to like face it. But that also kind of correlates back to what you had said before, where you were like, I was controlled by all of the things that I was trying to push down. So we think that by like pushing it down and suppressing it down, that like we're controlling it, but we don't actually real, I I don't think we fully like connect the dots that by pushing it down, it's the one controlling all of our behaviors because we're constantly um, following that like the, the, the behavior to suppress it and keep it down, the drinking, the binging, the alcohol, like whatever it is. I don't think we fully make the connection that we think we're controlling it, but actually it's controlling us. Totally. And, and I feel like if anything is making my life unmanageable, I usually get sick enough of it to want to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. You, when you sat, talked about like, or reflected to me that experience of like someone holding the mirror up, have you had that experience in your own recovery? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually had it recently. Um, really? Yeah. So one of the things that I've been really working on the last year is the relationship that I have with my mom. It's been an ongoing process um, and it's morphed and changed over the years. And I was in therapy last year and my therapist would just kind of reflected back of like, I don't think you're overreacting. I, you know, like I think how you're feeling as a result of what you've shared with me, like makes a lot of sense. And even just that like acknowledgement and reflection, I kind of was able to like relax a little bit and even soften with my mom around that. And then another thing also is like, I've talked to my therapist about what it's like to, to like be online and to witness cancellations and to like witness, and I don't know if you've seen this, like therapists cancel their therapist, which has always felt a little unsettling to me. Yes. It's like, okay, we're mental health professionals, but then we're like bullying people online. This feels kind of unsafe and unsettling. And I reflected that to her and she was like, I could imagine why that's a little traumatizing to you to like witness that. And so even that, that was also a recent reflection, just to give some examples. She like validated me of like, that actually does sound traumatizing to be online in that way. And I was like, yeah. And that just felt 
it felt, it was so helpful to be validated that like, I wasn't, oh, I guess like overreacting. I don't know. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing. Also, I just want to validate again that I went through something similar with those fears coming up around seeing therapists doing that with their therapists. And like, I don't have a big platform like you, but like that scares me. Definitely. Yeah. Especially when like, you know, your intentions to, to like help transform the world. And like, you're a therapist, like your life's work is to help. And so to like have your words twisted or manipulated or taken out of context or misinterpreted and then be on the other end of an online bullying campaign also is that in and of itself is hard, but then to like feel potentially, I'm assuming really misrepresented because you know, your heart, like that would just feel so hard. Yeah. To feel so unseen. Yeah. So that, those were two recent validating experiences that I, that were like very, like, it's just helpful to be validated. I think we underestimate, we underestimate how that in and of itself is healing. Totally. I saw a sign once and it was like, like on someone's Facebook and it was like, I was was waiting for you to bust out into song. Like (laughs) I saw a sign. (laughs) Go ahead. That's so good. It said validation is for parking. And I was like, actually, no, validation is for healthy relationships and relationship with self. But okay. (laughs) I don't mean like, like, yes, we want to validate ourselves first, but to validate our experiences when doing trauma work, like we need that. I'm laughing about the validation is for parking. Yeah. Like, was that like a tough type mm-hmm. of like like you don't need to be validated vibe totally oh. okay congrats congrats yeah congrats that you don't you don't want your experience validated from others like okay got it <laughs> won't validate you right <laughs> so what was kind of your breaking point your rock bottom and then you got into recovery and I'd love to talk about sobriety so like what was like okay this is no longer helping me survive my life anymore so I would say that within the year of turning 18 to 19 like I was at rock bottom and I just stayed there until I was 22 closer to 23 and the way I got sober is so crazy because I was so fucked up like I did not like have some moment of clarity where I was like sober and I was like please help like I barely even remember Mm. asking for help like I barely remember going through this process but I'm so blessed that my parents have financial financial resources because treatment is not accessible or affordable and it was for me and I acknowledge that as a privilege and maybe some of the reasons why the rest of that friend group of mine not alive and I'm where I am I also was just so miserable like I would, so I literally remember I would lay in my bed, like I wouldn't sleep, but I would be in bed, like tweaked out of my mind at like four, five, six, seven a.m. Then I would go and get alcohol to drink. I would drink tequila in Tulsi Rose tea. 
at seven o'clock in the morning. It's literally so disgusting. Don't ever try it to like calm down because I was so toasted. I, and I just remember in those hours praying to God, even though I'm, I wasn't raised religious. I'm not religious. Like I mean, I'm, I'm, I believe in a higher power now, but at that time, just pr- literally being like, God, like, please make this stop. And then I'll, I would bargain and I would be like, I'm not going to do this again tomorrow. And the sun would come up and it would start all over again. And I literally could not stop. And it was just like over, it was like Groundhog's Day, but like terror, like hell Groundhog's Day. Um, and it's even weird to like talk about this now because sometimes I forget how bad it was. Like I've been sober a while and that was like such a hell that like whatever comes up today. I'm like, yeah, like just like nothing really could cause me that much suffering. I don't think grief, loss, like what, like that was it. That was hell. Um, Cause I was so afraid to die I knew I was about to die. Like if something was not going to continue, I was taking way too many drugs, but I would not kill myself. And I did not want to be alive. And that, that mixture of like wanting to die, not wanting to die at this, it was hell. So anyways, somehow, some way I went to my parents and I was like, I will go to a treatment program that is not called a rehab. (laughs) because I didn't want to admit what I was up to I didn't want to admit that I was using for some reason that was like the worst thing to me it was so shameful Hmm. which is actually funny to me now because I like have literally I don't care I'll tell anyone about it and I don't have any shame about it I think too there was this dynamic of be having the amphetamine addiction and knowing part of the addiction and not wanting to let it go is because it was um making me thinner and not eat and I was using it for like drug-induced anorexia and um that dynamic like I didn't talk about for so long even after I got sober but again today I'm like I don't care uh, so I went to my parents they hired a consultant to like find a, the right program for me and I picked a wilderness therapy program because I was like, you know, there, it was like a mindfulness based program. It worked on a native American medicine wheel. We did Lakota sweats, like <clears throat> it just seemed like more me. Um, and I feel like there was always this like seeker inside me, even when I was like, so insane, like out of my mind that like wanted to connect deeper with like the whole universe around me and so like things like mindfulness and um like any toward sort of practices that wasn't tra- traditional like to this society I was interested in so I picked a wilderness therapy program without reading the brochures or anything and I even had a phone call with my new therapist and Um, My dad got on a plane with me, literally didn't sleep, stayed up all night doing drugs, um, got picked up by these transports. And I cannot like remember them, but they were two blonde angels. Like they literally like came and took me. I took pills the whole time in the car, sneaking them, got to wilderness therapy, literally found out I was going to be sleeping outside, (laughs) found out I was going to be carrying a 
pack that like weighed like 70 pounds. Um, I, I had to do naked jumping jacks, even though I still like had been smuggling pills in my body. Not literally, I would say you asked me rock bottom, rock bottom is putting pills inside the orifices of your body to sneak them in to rehab. <laughs> um, you know, getting high on the way to rehab is a pretty common thing. <laughs> totally. And I slept outside, didn't even make a shelter, just got in my sleeping bag. I was so messed up. Like I had no idea what was going on. And it was dark out when they brought me out to the field. Wow. Um, and I didn't go to detox or anything. And the first few weeks, I barely remember. I would like drag my pack, like with the P cord, like on the ground behind me, like while we were hiking. Um, and it wasn't like, just to be clear, it wasn't one of those like bad wilderness programs that are like dangerous. Like it was literally amazing. But one day I woke up in the woods and I was like clear and like, happy with nothing like you wear the same clothes every day you have the same food every week like you there's no mirrors you shower with like a bucket once a week like I was so filthy um (laughs) but I was like filthy before I went so it didn't even matter and um I was like I like like I'm okay like I just had this moment where I was like I am okay wow yeah And I didn't admit I was an addict until 10 weeks in. How long were you there? 12 weeks. And then I went to more treatment. I needed it. I mean, clearly, but yeah. um, And I like called my whole group around me. I had been journaling about how was I going to stay this scene when I go back to fish and dead shows (laughs) and and uh, I realized that I, if I didn't tell someone that I, I was a real addict, like I was not going to stay sane, basically. I was going to be unhappy again. And I called my whole group around me and I was like, I need to tell you guys something like I'm a drug addict. And they were all like, yeah, we like know that. Like <laughs> they were like, you for sure are. <laughs> um and then my whole life changed from that moment. Like it really did. It was like, I just let go of like the weight of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious. I understand the conversation around privilege and having access to care, but you had a very conscious moment where it sounds like you went to your parents and you were like, I need help. So I'm curious if you think that recovery choosing if recovery is a choice. Hmm. Yeah. Because I've seen plenty of people go through treatment and if they don't want it and they're, or if they're not forget wanting it, if you're not willing to take the actions suggested to you by the people who are there to help you get better, it's going to be really hard to get better. I didn't know. I literally didn't know how to mop a floor when I got sober. Like I didn't know the order in which to get dressed. I like, like, I didn't know shit. And, um, I most certainly didn't know about mental health and my best thinking got me into that situation. So it most certainly wasn't going to get me out of it. So I do think recovery is a choice. I think it's something you choose every single day. I think if we are in active addiction, there is no choice. Explain that. Like, 
for me, like once I put something in my body and I think this is different for everyone, not everyone who abuses substances identifies as like an addict, right? But for me, I believe I have a disease. I, if I put anything that alters my mind in my body, I immediately crave more. I don't think that normal people, I mean, you can tell me, do do you like randomly crave substances? Probably not, right? Well, I'm not sober. So, right. right. That's what I'm saying. But you don't have like a problem, right? So no. like, so like the second I have one is something I want two, and then I want three and then I want, you know what I mean? So when I'm mind altered, like I can't have choice. So that's what you mean. Okay. So you're saying like when somebody is like actively under the influence of something and they're continuing to use more, they don't have choice because they're under the influence. But when they are in a potentially a moment of sobriety um, or like they've sobered up rather, there is that possibility to have choice. Totally. And I think for me, like asking for help was like, not, I feel like it was not me. Like, I think it was a higher power because I don't even remember. I literally don't remember doing it. And so I feel like in that way, like that was just a blessing basically. But I think like to go, just having the privilege or the access to go to treatment to get help for whatever it's for is not enough to have recovery. You have to be willing to do the things and plenty of people get sober or get better without going to treatment. Yeah. Like I didn't go to any type of specialized treatment and like, you know, I was throwing up 10, 20 times a day and like, there was no way in fucking hell my parents could have afforded totally any type of support. You know, like I remember when I told my parents that I had an eating disorder, they were like, well, maybe you should try living with boys instead of living with girls. Like I was a college student. They like thought that was the problem. <laughs> wow. So like, yeah. there was just no, no way that like, and I, so I do believe that like, even if you don't have access to the rich girl rehab or wilderness rehab or like whatever, I do think that there has to be something within you that chooses to do the hard thing. Totally. But some people disagree with that. I've read lots of posts online with people who say uh, recovery isn't a choice and I don't understand. <laughs> That's so interesting. I think it's a choice. Like I can, I can, in this moment, I am clear enough that I can choose to go pick up or not. And I can choose to go to a meeting or not. And I can choose to call my sponsor or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you clearly were like, all right, I'm going to go to this thing. You said, yes, you chose to say yes to the wilderness rehab, which I've never heard of anything like that before in my entire life. It really, I mean, it's hard. You really, I developed so much self-confidence that way and like self-efficacy. Like being in the outdoors and surviving, you mean? And it's like, you know, like the, the staff, you're never alone. The staff is all trained and like, but to realize that I could like live without material things and to learn how to be vulnerable, holy shit, that's still so hard for me. But like to learn to trust people, to learn that like my body could like hike miles, like all those, you know, literally like sleep, making a shelter. I can make a shelter out of like a tarp. Like they don't teach you how to do that on the 
where I'm from, you know, or anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, literally. And so I think it just like helped me by the end. Like I was, I was in a leadership role. Like I felt more capable, more empowered in like ways I had never showed up in my life before. Mm. Have you ever watched that show alone? No. Is it one of those like wilderness survival shows? Yeah. So they take like 10 participants and they put them out in like a remote location in the middle of like wherever. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember one like being sort of like in the Vancouver mountains and they bring them there like in fall. So it's not completely cold and they have time to like build shelter. And then they stay there through the winter. And then whoever stays the longest, I think it's like $500,000. And these people are like trained wilderness experts. Like there's, I could not do this challenge. Like I have no, like, (laughs) (laughs) like they catch their food. They like build their shelter. They like, will you know, build a shelter with like a fireplace in it. And then they'll like weave baskets to make, to catch fish, like all these. And it's like, that's wild. It's a great show. Like I love it. I'm fascinated (laughs) that sounds awesome but like I hate to camp so so it's really funny because I like love being outside I love you know I live in Sedona all the time I love nature and I go backpacking with my friends sometimes and every single time I'm scared and I literally slept in the woods for three months straight like when I was in wilderness but it's it's not me it's not natural to me like I love my bed I love my house I love knowing who's around me you know what I mean but I do think it's good in general whatever it is you're doing to push yourself to do something that you're not really sure you're capable of doing that I think is huge yeah 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 I I saw a post by um uh um fuck what's her answer Mary's cup of tea love her page. Yeah. Yeah. Today she posted something like on that note, she posted, you know, like scare yourself a little bit. And she talked about like all these different things that she has done that have like scared her, but then been beautiful on the other side. So yeah. 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 Um, so one quick topic and then we'll, we'll kind of start to wrap it up because we're getting to our hour point here. I want to just touch on self-esteem. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like what lowers it? what helps us improve it? What is self-esteem? Yeah. I would say, you know, I don't know what the true definition is, but like, I think self-esteem is confidence, kind of what we were just talking about, confidence in your own abilities and in yourself. And for me, like my experience of it, when I have like good self-esteem is this sense of like security in myself and like trust in myself I think a huge thing that lowers it is any sort of trauma so and this goes back to what we were talking about right in the beginning where we were talking about like my parents got divorced my dad moved out whatever and the story my brain made up to protect the attachment was something is wrong with me. And from there, I started to build my, my identity around that. And obviously I've done a lot of work around this. It's been a long, I'm 30, but like I had such low self-esteem. And I think that's because when the identity is built around this idea that something's wrong with me, how, how could you possibly feel good about yourself? Right? Yes. 
And I think also, you know, things like um, I work with a lot of people who have been sexually assaulted. I've had that experience in my own use. Like that kills self-esteem, right? It shouldn't, like, I don't mean shouldn't like on the victim, like it shouldn't have to be a thing, but it totally is. It's really hard to feel good about yourself when someone else is telling you that you don't have worth, right? And you're not fully developed. Is I want to unpack that a little bit just so that I understand and so that people listening, what is the potential thought process that a person who is being abused in that way has that results in them developing low self-worth? Is it possible that like their abuser says that directly, or is that sort of what you interpret by somebody having their way with you? Either or. So, and I think too, like I've had clients make up stories that like they weren't good enough for someone to actually want to respect them. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Which of course, just to clarify, not true, not a fact, but that is what people's brains make up when they're trying to make sense of something so messed up happening to you. And really like, you know, from an outside adult, higher self brain perspective, it's like, no, that person's just a monster and you ended up in this terrible situation, right? But to the individual it's happening to, it's often like, I wasn't good enough to have someone respect me or um, care about what happens to my body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that no matter how old you are, younger, I think it's more likely that that will be imprinted. Like that will be the story. I could see that being the case, no matter your age, if something like that happens to you, that we would interpret and essentially create that narrative around it with the attempt of trying to understand why it happened. Even if it's like a disempowering story, I know our brains totally try to grasp for understanding. It's not conscious. It's not a conscious thought usually. And, um, you know, people will often feel really disgusting after something like that happens. Um, You'll want to maybe not shower or want to hide yourself so that you can't be seen in the world anymore as a form of self-protection. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Just the feeling disgusting, the wanting to hide, the wanting to shrink. I think that's why so many people who are victims of that uh, experience and develop eating disorders or exercise addictions and things like that. That makes sense. Yeah. So then how does someone improve their self-esteem? And it can be quick tips or you can do like deep and meaningful. Yeah. Um, I, I like to look at this two ways, two ways. One, people who have good self-esteem do what they consider to be esteemable things, which looks different for everyone. For me, esteemable things look like going to therapy, helping other people, um, managing my triggers as best I can, um, being kind, right? That makes me feel good about myself. So do uh, being of service to other people, that's going to look different for everyone. Uh, if you don't know what your esteemable thing is, I always tell someone, just go help someone else. Just start with that, right? Because that's kind of universal. Yeah. Um, so that, but then also healthy relationships, working on secure attachments in your relationships, 
Um, I love to give my therapy clients this assignment, um, which is to literally sit down, put in your notes in your phone and write down everything you like about yourself, but like genuinely take the time to do that. Like, do you think you're funny? Do you like the way your shoulder blade moves to the left? Like it does not matter what it is, but make a whole list of it. And then when you're not feeling good enough, look at that list, right? Because really what it boils down to, in my opinion, is self-worth. And the more like worthy, the more we can like internalize that we're just inherently worthy, the the less our sense of self is going to fluctuate so much, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. obviously takes like a lot of work. It's not that easy. Um, the other piece is setting boundaries. So like, we have this saying in 12-step rooms, like, um, act as if, or you could say, like, fake it till you make it. So, like, you might not respect yourself today, but just act like someone who does. So that looks like, no, you can't walk all over me. Or, like, this is what I need from you in our relationship. Like, actually being assertive and setting boundaries and advocating for yourself. Yeah. And I think, I think we get ourselves stuck when we think that we have to start to feel worthy before we start to do those things. But the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which why I get why it's act as if, and like fake it to yeah. fake it. It's like, you kind of have to start to do those things. And when you do those things, then it's going to start to transform that belief that you're not worthy, but we get stuck when we wait for us to feel worthy before we go and do those things. Like it just doesn't work like that. I love that you kind of pulled that in here and your first comment on do esteemable things. I love that. That's like, makes so much sense. I haven't heard that before. It's a great little, like quick nugget for people. Like the way you build self-esteem is to do things that you deem esteemable. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Self-esteem is tricky, but like I find with most of my therapy clients, that's something we have to work on. Yeah. You know, I know that we kind of are, we're helpers, we're the helpers and the healers, but, and I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like it's kind of a lifelong journey. It's a, it's like a, when you had said like, you know, recovery is a choice every day. I think once you become like aware, I guess it gets easier. It's not like there's this constant battle. Like it used to be when we were deeply struggling in our disorders, but I think that it, it's, there's like a level of maintenance that is always required. I think that's my opinion based on my personal experience. There's always this sort of level of maintenance to keep my esteem high because life can get rocky. Definitely. Definitely. And I think, you know, please do speak for me. Cause that's so on point <laughs> and it, I really go, I really do. I know we keep talking about like trauma, but like if you have a trauma trigger, right, from someone in your adult life, like, you may go back to that child consciousness of like, oh, no, something's wrong with me, I'm not good enough. And so to be able to have that awareness, which is why I think it's so amazing that you are doing parts work. I didn't know, like, um, non-therapists did that, but like, you really do such therapeutic work with your clients. And that is so amazing, because if like, if we're doing talking about eating disorders, like we can't, I don't think we can not talk about looking at the parts of ourselves and the parts of ourselves that don't feel good enough where our self-esteem is low. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I first came to like, I, I first came to it through like a spirituality space and like inner child and then got introduced to parts work and then later IFS, but it makes so much sense to me that we have these different parts. And, you know, one of the things that Richard Schwartz always says is that like, he noticed that people just talked that way. Like people yeah. are just like, yeah, there's this part of me and like human beings talk that way. There's like a part of me that's like, like really fucking mad at you. And then a part of me that like loves you and understands, like we just talk like that. Totally. Yeah. I was literally reading a book on IFS this morning and kind of what you just said, like the woman who wrote the book was studying with him and she was like, how did you come up with this? And he was like, my clients told me it like they, this is how they were speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when people take a moment to reflect, you know, that they'll, they'll, be able to realize that they do talk that way. Like there is a part of me, there's a part of me that's really ang- like, or they're like, yeah, there's a part of me that really wants to do it. And a part of me that really doesn't want to, like we have parts with different beliefs and perspectives and that's, we're complex. It's like, we feel two different ways about the same thing. Like, it's just a, I, it's a beautiful framework. Um, and I think that understanding the perspective of inner child and when your inner child can get activated and then kind of like take over the system and then you're not acting from your like adult mature brain, but from that inner child place, like I think that framework and mindset um, is like necessary for like any type of growth. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like I'll joke, like if I'm really triggered, like I'm just like one big like inner child, like totting around like in a diaper, like Mm -hmm. that's my sign. Like I need, I need to go, go do some self-care. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also helpful to remember that, like, um, that it can always get triggered again and you just hone your ability to become conscious after you've kind of slipped into that like unconscious inner child space and that's like a skill you know totally it is it takes a lot of mindfulness yeah yeah and like energy you know and awareness it's hard but it's possible you know so this has been so fun to chat with you Hi, you too and like get to uh get to know you more get to hear your story and thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with the pod I Love that you live in Sedona. I fucking love Sedona. It's the gorgeousest place ever. If you come here, tell me. We'll like go on a hike or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, so before we wrap up, um, please share where people can find you. If you are taking clients, all the things. Totally. Thank you. So people can find me on social media on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. It's at M's Therapy Den, E-M-S Therapy Den. Um, I'd love to connect with you there. And then I am taking clients in the state of Arizona only because that's the only state I'm licensed in. Yeah, that's good to clarify. Yeah. But I do see if you're in Arizona, I see clients virtually. So cool, cool. Uh, Any little nuggets you want to drop before we wrap up? No, this has been great. Thank you so much for even like thinking of me. Yeah, absolutely. So glad to have you on. Thank you. And that is our show today. Thank you guys so much for being here, for listening. I hope you got so much value out of today's podcast. 
please share it in your Instagram story, share it with a friend, tag me, shoot me a DM. I always love to hear and interact from you guys. And then again, be sure to check out my new book, One Day at a Time, Daily Reflections for Overcoming Food and Body Image Struggles. I love you all. I'll see you next time.